I want you to turn to Romans chapter 15. As I, as I shared last week, when you get into chapter 15, um, Paul begins to um, close his letter. And we're sort of done with the practical application portion of his letter. The way Paul structured Romans is he gives us all the theology in the first eight chapters, and then he talks about Israel and, and the church and the Gentiles in uh, 9, 10, and 11. And then chapter 12, he starts the practical application. You know, What do you do with the theology that he just shared with us? Well, he's done with that section, and he now is sort of closing out his letter. And I'll be real frank. I'm very black and white in my thinking. When I study, I look for the practical application, or I look for the theological themes that are there, and, and all of that. And almost always when I get to the end of Paul's letters, it's very easy for me just to sort of skip through them. Because I'm looking for the practical application and the meaning and all that kind of stuff, you know? And I always have to sort of catch myself and say, but wait a minute, it's God-breathed, it's inspired. God must have put it there for a reason. But I sometimes struggle with, well, what's, what's that reason? And I kind of reserved myself a number of years ago that sometimes I think it's just there for us to reflect on it. In other words, we may not get walking orders out of it. We may not get some great theological truth out of it. It might just be there for us to think about and to reflect upon. And one thing it does do, in Paul's case, is it tells us something about the Apostle Paul. He's not just some sterile um, apostle that we, we don't see a personality or other things in. And so one of the neat things about um, last week and this week is we sort of get a picture into Paul, how he thought, what was important to him, what was um, valuable to him. And uh, so this morning's going to be kind of like that. There's not a whole lot of practical meat in this in terms of marching orders or things we can do with it, but there's some neat personal insights into the Apostle Paul, things that help us understand um, what made him tick, if you will. The first one is just very simple, and it's that Paul recognized his need for other people. Okay? It may sound pretty simple, you know, we all need others, but when I think about the Apostle Paul, I think, you know, he was probably the greatest apostle that ever lived. You know, you, you, we recently lost Billy Graham, obviously, and people are talking about how Billy Graham probably led more people to Christ in his ministry than anybody in history, which is probably true. But you know, the Apostle Paul probably runs a close second, you know, um, the influence Paul had on the church, obviously, there, there wouldn't be a Gentile church had it not been for God using Paul to do what he did. And so we, we look at Paul and we see this strong, sturdy man who traveled and committed his life to this kind of stuff. And he faced life in prison on multiple occasions. And he had all these sufferings that he went through. But he's so strong, you know. And you kind of forget that Paul was human like the rest of us. And we can see in some of his writings the dependency he had on others. One of my favorite uh, passages is when Paul reflects back on John Mark and he says, you know, bring John Mark to me. Remember, he and John Mark had this conflict where they split up and he couldn't trust John Mark and so Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas and they went their separate ways but at the end of Paul's life he says, bring him to me, he's good for me. You know, there's another section in his last letter to Timothy where he tells, tells Timothy, bring the cloak simply because he was cold. You know, so Paul was human just like us, and he relied on other people. Look at um, chapter 15, verses 22 through 24. He says this, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Paul had never met 
these Roman readers. As far as we know, he never had made it to Rome prior to this. But we do know by the end of the, the, the letter here that he knew a bunch of them by name. But he didn't, have a, he didn't see them face to face, most of them. Some of them he had, but for the most part he did not know most of these people. He had simply heard about them. Now nobody knows who first brought the gospel to Rome. We don't know how these people got saved. Some people think that maybe it was Jews that had left Pentecost. Because remember at Pentecost there were Jews from all over the world. 5,000 of them got saved that day. And where do you suppose they went after that? They didn't all hang around in Jerusalem. They all went back home. And there likely would have been Roman Jews that were there at Pentecost. So that's one suspicion. Another suspicion is that maybe Priscilla and Aquila had brought the gospel to Rome. In fact, Paul mentions them at chapter 16 of this book, three verses where he mentions that they actually had a ministry to Gentiles out of their home. They had established a home church. And so it's possible that maybe Priscilla and Aquila had gone on to Rome and had brought people to Christ. Like I said, Paul knew many of the believers, at least, you know, as indicated by chapter 16, but again, had probably never met some of them face-to-face, had not been uh, physically there in Rome, so we're not really sure. But we see here that Paul had a desire to see him, a pretty strong desire. He mentions two reasons why he longed to see them in this first chunk here. Notice he says, For I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. There's two things that we see there. Paul mentions this word or this phrase, to be helped on his way. It's kind of an interesting Greek word because it refers to um, providing help for somebody when they're leaving on a journey. So Paul says that one of the reasons he wanted to go to Rome was he wanted to be helped on his journey to Spain. Paul had an interest, and he says an interest for years here to go to Spain. So he says, I'd like to stop by Rome because I need some help getting to Spain, basically. I need some help on my journey. This word is used by Luke in the book of Acts on four different occasions to refer to believers accompanying or helping other believers on their journey, including Paul. In fact, there's one scene where it says that all of the people, the husbands, wives, and their children, walked with Paul as he journeyed out of the city to send him on his way as a form of encouragement. That's the word Paul uses here. He wanted that of the Romans. He wanted to stop by, have them um, help him along that journey. But there's other places in Scripture, especially in places like 2 Corinthians and Titus, where it refers to financial support. In fact, I want you to turn to Titus chapter 3 with me. Oops, come on. Titus chapter 3. Verse 13, Paul writes this. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds and to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. The implication there is help this individual, Zenos, and Apollos on their missionary journey that they're about to start and make sure that they don't lack anything. He's obviously talking there about some form of material provision for them. Turn to 3 John, if you would. Third John, I'm going to read from chapter 1. Well, it's only one chapter, but chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Oh, 
I'll start in verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way, that's the same word, in a manner worthy of God, for they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that they may be fellow workers with the truth. He's talking there about some form of financial or material aid to these. So again, the way that this word that Paul is using here, to be helped on his way, has two implications. One is that it's simply a form of encouragement, sending them out with your support, with your um, encouragement. And again, the picture that we find in the book of Acts is uh, people walking out of the city um, as far as they could go to sort of encourage Paul as he head out, headed out on his next missionary journey. But the second aspect of this word is the idea of financial support. And so Paul actually wanted to um, stop by Spain for those two reasons. Now there's another reason we'll get to in a second, but you know, what's interesting about this is Paul is talking about going from Jerusalem to Spain. Anybody know how far that is, the journey? If you did it by land, it's, uh, I think it's, what, 4,000? Actually, it's 5,400 miles. Think about that for a second. 5,400 miles from Jerusalem to Spain. If you took a boat, it was 4,000 miles. Now, the average person back in Paul's day could walk about 15 to 18 miles a day. Anybody want to do the math in their head? How, long, how many days it would take Paul to get from Jerusalem to Spain if he walked 18 miles a day every day without any breaks? Come on, we don't have any financial wizards in here. No kids that can do that in their head? Well, I couldn't either. Um, 300 days. Yeah. 300 days it would take him. So we know that Paul would not walk 18 miles a day every single day. He would take breaks, obviously. And so this really would probably be a journey that would take well over a year. Even if he took a boat, it's still going to be a huge chunk of time. And to travel like that would also require a huge amount of financial resources. Now, Paul was a tent maker. He made tents for a living. Um, he would provide for his needs and the needs of his men. But we also know in the rest of the scriptures that he had to rely on people. Because there were times where he just didn't have enough. And so he's got this pretty massive journey, probably the largest journey he's going to take, that he's planning to go to Spain. And one of the reasons he was going to stop in Rome was because it was partway along the trip. And he was hoping that the churches there would help him financially and emotionally and everything else along that journey. So it was partly a way of, of um, seeking their help to get him to Spain to share the gospel. So in addition to their support, whether that be just emotional support or encouragement, um, he also wanted to be um, in their company just to enjoy them. That's the second reason he says here. He says, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. I love the word that he uses here because it means to be completely filled up or satisfied. I, I share this oftentimes. You know, translation is an interesting beast because there's not always a one-to-one translation from a foreign language into a, another language. Especially if you're dealing with ancient languages like Koine Greek, which isn't really spoken. Um, or a word like, or a language like Hebrew. And so, sometimes you'll find in your English translations, between different translations, the words will vary. And sometimes it's because a Greek or a Hebrew word might have much more nuance to it, and you can use it in multiple ways. And so, the New American Standard actually translate this as, you know, when I've enjoyed your company. You know, that to me sounds more like sort of sitting over a cup of tea, you know, back, back in Great Britain, you know. 
Just would like to enjoy your company, you know. But the idea here is really to more be sort of filled up and completely satisfied, to have a fat belly from people, you know. Um, that's the picture that Paul is trying to communicate here. Um, when I was in seminary, I think I've shared this before, I was out of college for about two years, and I had about $9,000 of college debt, which wasn't terrible. I think my monthly payment on my, on my debt was about 125 bucks. It wasn't too bad. But as I considered seminary, and the cost of seminary, I did not want to take on any more debt. I didn't think it was appropriate, and I didn't think that I'd be able to ultimately afford it at the, in the end um, to pay the bills back. Well, the church approached me and said, we'd like you to go to seminary. And I just said, well, I don't think it's wise at this point. So the pastor said, well, what if I paid for a chunk of that? And he offered to pay for 25 or 30% out of his own pocket. And then I said, wow, that's really generous, but I still have to come up with the rest. And he said, the church will take care of that. And he didn't mean the church, he meant the people in the church would take care of it. Meaning, people will step up. So, just on faith, I decided, you know what, I'll go ahead and I'll do it. So every semester, what I would do is I would, I would write these letters, and they were, they were a little bit unusual. I, I always hated missionary letters because they were boring. You know? So I decided instead to write these comical newsletters back to people back at the church. And um, ended up developing quite a following with these comical newsletters, and that became my support team. I never set it out for that. So what they did was they asked me, they said, at the end of these letters that you send to us, just put in what your needs are for the next semester. Just tell us financially what you need to do the next semester. And so my commitment to the church was, I will go to seminary, and if I have the finances at the end of the semester to pay for the next semester, I'll go. If I don't, I'll just keep working and I'll wait until the next semester. So it's up to you. You know, if you as a church supply what I need, I'll go. I'll take that as an indicator I'm supposed to go. If you don't, not. every single semester I had exactly what I needed. I didn't have more, didn't have less. So every end of every semester, I'd register for the next semester, not knowing whether or not I was going to go, and just wait. What was interesting is that I would always go back at the end of every semester, between those two semesters, to visit that church. And I tell you, it was fantastic. Because I didn't go there to raise money. I went there to see the people that were supporting me. And I tell you, I would show up and people would ask me over to, to their house. for I couldn't fit in everybody. you know. Um, I'd be at their houses. They would come up to me at church constantly. And I tell you, it would take and lift my spirits through the roof. Now, when I was in seminary, I worked full-time. I went to school full-time working on a master's degree. And I pastored a church. I literally... Got up in the morning, ate, worked out, went to school, went straight to work, came home, ate, went straight to the library until about 11 or 12 o'clock at night, went back home into bed and got up at 6 a.m. Every single morning of every single day. And when I got done with the semester, I was beat up. But yet, I'd go home and these people would refresh me like crazy. And I needed that every semester, man, because then I'd start the next semester and I could do it all again. I don't know if I've shared this with a lot of people, but when I graduated, the day I graduated, went through the whole ceremony thing, I went home, I literally collapsed on the floor in my mobile home and wept. Wept because of this burden of four years of keeping that kind of pace. I could not have done it. Except that every semester when I'd go back home at the end of that semester, these people for anywhere from two weeks to a month. In fact, one time I went home for a whole entire, I went back there for a whole entire summer. Man, they lifted my spirits. 
They helped me on my way. They did everything that the Apostle Paul here was looking for. They gave me financial support. They gave me emotional support. They encouraged me. They strengthened me. They sent me on my way every single semester. That's what Paul is getting at here. He needed that. And I imagine Paul really needed that to continue doing what he was doing. I could not have done it myself. I look back at it now and I think, I don't have the strength. It was a God thing to get me through that. Um, but I know that God used people back at that church in Warsaw, or I'm sorry, Warsaw, Wisconsin, to give me the strength and everything else that I needed to tackle another semester at that kind of a pace. Paul says, if you look back in verses 9 through 12, I'm sorry, um, yeah, back in chapter 1 of 9 through 12 verses, look at how he started the letter. Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. But then look at this, verse 12. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you all among you, each of us by one another's faith, both yours and mine. I think if we were to ask Paul today, whether his life and ministry were possible without the help and support of other believers within the body of Christ, he would give us a resounding no. He would say, absolutely not. I couldn't have done it. He relied on them for encouragement and fellowship. He relied on them for financial support. I'll give you two passages. You can look them up on your own, but 2 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, as well as Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. Paul talks about that support, how he robbed from one church to support another, meaning they gave so that I could go and minister to another church. And so there's these two passages that spell out Paul's need for financial assistance from these churches, and he relied on it. We'll also see in a little bit later in this chapter, probably next week, um, how much he relied on them for their prayers. Did you ever reflect on how important the body of Christ is to you? Did you ever really think about what you may or may not be able to do if you didn't have the love and support of your church family or other believers? You know... We used to talk in Campus Crusade for Christ about Lone Ranger Christians. Kind of out there on their own, you know. And none of us are Lone Rangers. Paul wasn't either. Um, He needed people. He needed his fellow believers in Christ. And that says a lot for a guy as bold and confident as the Apostle Paul. And so I love the fact that we see something like that reflected on a passage like this this morning. What else can we learn about the Apostle Paul? Well, he was motivated by the needs of other people. Again, that's just a simple truth, and that probably shouldn't surprise us. But look at verses 25 through 29 of Romans chapter 15. Paul says, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. That's key for us here. I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, And they are indebted to them, for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my, or I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Now remember, what Paul is doing here is he's actually traveling from Corinth, 
Gentile area, on to Jerusalem, a heavily Jewish area, and then he's going to go to Spain after that. So he's sort of doing a stopover in Jerusalem, hopes to do a stopover in Rome as well. But the first and the primary reason he's going back to Jerusalem is because he's got some financial gifts for the for the uh, saints there. The Jews in, in Jerusalem are being persecuted severely, not just by the Romans, but also by others in the area. And so they were struggling. We would imagine that many of them maybe didn't have jobs. Think about what's happening in our culture and society today. You know, we live in a supposed Christian country, if you will. But yet, Christianity is coming more and more under attack. We've got areas where governments now are stepping in to try to dictate what we can and cannot do with our Christian-owned businesses, right? We know that as we approach the end of the current age, that we're told that we might not be able to buy and sell things without the mark of the beast, whatever that ends up meaning and entails. Okay? Anytime you get under er, times of severe persecution, Christians will suffer and find it difficult at times to provide. Maybe they don't have jobs, maybe they're not, maybe because they're run all, I mean, think about the Jews in Jerusalem being kicked out of Jerusalem, sent out into something called the diaspora. They lose everything. They lose their farms and their goods. What does that do to a family? It devastates them financially. And so we have these Jews in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem that are struggling significantly and need help. And so the Gentiles in other areas sent financial gifts. So Paul is actually marching on his way to Jerusalem to help those poor saints in Jerusalem that don't have what they need. We know that he had a heart for preaching the gospel. He says this in Romans 9. He says, I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. My consciousness or my conscience bears with me in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of the brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul had this passion for his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. He says in Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God to them is their salvation. So we know that Paul had this... Um, passion to see fellow Jews come to Christ. That's no question. I think we looked at this last week, but Colossians chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1, we know that Paul had this passion for seeing people complete and mature in Christ. We know that about him. But what we haven't always quite seen and we see today is that he not only had a passion for the spiritual lives of those he either led to Christ or those he ministered to, but he had a passion for their physical needs as well. Because that's what we see here. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. He mentions this gifts that he's giving here. Now that might give us the impression that Paul was merely a delivery boy. But what we find elsewhere is that this was all of Paul's doing. Paul started this ministry, if you will, to gather the money for the saints in Jerusalem. If you go back to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 with me. First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and to save, as he may prosper, so that no collection be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send with them letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul indicates that he directed the churches to do this. We know elsewhere that Paul actually um, reminded them to do this, to put this money aside so that when he got to their churches, he would be able to simply to collect the money from them. So this is something Paul started, it appears. Paul had recognized that the, that the Jews in Jerusalem were struggling and suffering. 
He's a minister to the Gentiles. That's where God called him. That's where his primary ministry was. But his mind is back on some folks in Jerusalem recognizing they have some pretty serious needs. And Paul recognizes, huh, I'm out among these Gentiles who are all reaping the spiritual blessings of Israel, if you will. And they are now under obligation to in some way help those because their faith comes from them. And so Paul then begins to tell these churches as he's traveling to these Gentile churches, it's time for you folks to start setting aside some money. And when I get there, I'll collect it, and I'm going to take it to Jerusalem as your blessing to them in Jerusalem to help them out. And so this is something that Paul started. He wasn't just a messenger boy. Well, yeah, I happen to be going back to Jerusalem, so it's outside my normal ministry, but you know what, I'm going there anyway, so go ahead, and I'll take it, I guess. No, Paul made it part of his ministry. Which I think is interesting because Paul's primary ministry was the gospel. He makes it absolutely clear. But he didn't forget about the needs, the physical needs of people. So he wasn't just some delivery boy. He had started this. He took it so seriously that he wanted to deliver it personally himself. You notice here he says that he wanted to put his seal on it. That was a way of describing delivering goods, like things like grain or food in Paul's day. When they would be traveled, they would have their seal on as to who would, was responsible for it. And it was a way of ensuring that those products would be delivered. And so what Paul was doing was he's going back to Jerusalem, taking it with him because he wanted to be absolutely sure that that would make it back to Jerusalem. Now, it's not like today you just don't make a wire transfer, you know. Whenever my brothers and sisters and I buy things together as a group, we always pay each other by using our phones. You know? There's no danger in that. Paul's day, to travel with this kind of money, was extremely dangerous. And so Paul wanted to make sure that all of their giving actually made it to where it was supposed to go and didn't get lost somewhere along the way. So we saw that Paul was motivated by the needs of other people as well. So not only did he need them, but he was motivated by their need. The last thing I want to highlight here is that Paul actually coveted the prayers of fellow believers. Now again, just a very simple thing. You might think, well, that's obvious. But look at, some of, look at what, what Paul does here. Verses 30 through 33. 1 Corinthians chapter 30, verse... Or I'm sorry, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 30. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you, Dustin. Is that a 52-year-old brain or just me? Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, uh, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. We have Paul actually here pleading for their prayers. Some translations render this word here, urge. I urge you, um, appeal or implore. It's a word that actually implies struggling. Intense effort. Um, I like to use the word strive here. Strive. With me, because it implies hard work. Paul is using it obviously metaphorically here. Um, it creates this interesting picture because it almost gives the idea of I'm fighting for something, if you will. How many of us think of prayer that way? You know, um, we sort of have these casual prayers we do on a regular basis. Yeah, Lord, remember so and so. 
Paul's not so much talking about that. Paul's talking about a time of commitment. I wonder if Paul ever struggled with um, going from city to city and doing what he did, considering what he faced, and had what I call a Jesus moment. If you remember, what, what did Jesus do before the crucifixion, before his arrest? Anybody remember? Where did he go? Went to the garden, and we see him on his knees in the garden. And I'll say it this way because I think it's—I think this is what's intended: begging his disciples to pray along with him. Remember, he would go back and find him asleep, and he'd tell him to pray again, and then he'd go back, find him asleep, beg him to pray again. Um, he's in the garden. He's got blood dripping from his forehead because of the intensity of what he's praying. Okay. I wonder if Paul sometimes felt like that. And maybe that's what he's coveting here. Pray for me because of what he faced. He mentions another individual in Colossians, Epaphras, who I think probably exemplified this. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. But then he describes him this way, always laboring earnestly. In other words, he's, he's investing his energy and his time, intensity in prayer. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. What we learn about Epaphras there is that he intensely involved himself in prayer for the believers back at, at um, Coloss. That's kind of what Paul is talking about here. He desires them to struggle, to intensely pray for him, to join him in his own struggle there. Now, one of the reasons why Paul, why this was so important to Paul is because of the danger he was going to face in Jerusalem. I want you to think about a few things. Paul's ministry was plagued by Jews constantly following him in his ministry. They hated what Paul preached. Even some of the believers thought Paul was off base because they believed Paul was saying the law is not important anymore. And so even some of the um, Christian Jews were persecuting Paul, following from city to city, saying Paul's not right, and trying to convince those churches that Paul was misleading them. And because of that, he was constantly under threat of death. The book of Acts, there are four passages here where we see four times in the book of Acts where the Jews had tried to kill the Apostle Paul. And he had to flee the city because of that. One of the last cities that Paul visited on his way to Jerusalem was Tyre. Acts chapter 24 verse 41 says, or I'm sorry, 21 verse 4 says this. When he came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship with a huge cargo to unload. After looking up the disciples, he stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And it's because they knew what Paul was going to face if he got to Jerusalem. Remember, a hotbed of hatred for Christianity. And so, one of the last stops Paul made, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, they're saying, don't go there, Paul. Turn to Acts chapter 21 with me. Acts chapter 21. Verses 7 through 14 will read. When he, Paul, had, or I'm sorry, when we, Paul and his companions, had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived, so this is now after they had warned him, when he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Potelnes, 
And after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And they were staying there for some days. A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. That's where Paul's headed. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. You get that? Paul's been warned not to go up to Jerusalem. He's now got a prophet who comes down from the Jerusalem area and says, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you and hand you over to the Gentiles. And Paul's response is, Okay, so what's your point? He's not afraid to go to Jerusalem, and yet he's been warned on two occasions here what he's going to face when he gets there. In fact, when Paul actually arrived at Jerusalem, the Jews seized him, just like it was told. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21, verses 27 and following. Acts 21, starting in verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophius, Trophimus, an Ephesian, or I'm sorry, the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up from the commander of the Roman cohort, for all Jerusalem was in confusion. And once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So Paul was now being beaten by these Jews attempting to kill him. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. When he had gone to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Paul had been beaten so bad he could no longer walk. A little bit later, when when uh, they decide to transfer Paul, take him from here off, they had a couple of men assigned to him, but they got wind of 40 Jews that were plotting to now attack him and to kill him, and they put, I think it was 75 horsemen and a bunch of foot soldiers, this was a massive group. The plot was so intense and so large against Paul trying to kill him that they put their best soldiers on it. Like I said, 75, I think it was 75 horsemen and a bunch of foot soldiers because they needed that just to protect Paul. That's the hatred. That's what Paul was going into. And so when he writes to these Romans here and he says, pray for me, when he tells them right in the text, I need to be rescued from the hands of the Judeans, Paul knew exactly what he was going into. Now what I found remarkable about this 
Paul's life as we know it, the first were introduced to Paul, what is he doing in the book of Acts? Anybody remember? Getting papers to go and kill the Christians. Standing over Stephen, holding all their coats, he's got papers from the government to go and find Christians wherever he can find them, and he has the right to execute them. Doesn't even require a trial. That's where we began with Paul. What is Paul doing now? He's risking his life to go back to Jerusalem to provide for the very people that he was attempting to kill. If that's not the power of the gospel, then I don't know what is. Paul specifically asked them to pray for three things. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient. This is verse 31. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. He's talking about the Jews, the unsaved Jews that are trying to kill him. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. So basically the three things he prays for is deliverance from the unbelieving Jews. The second thing he prays for is that his gift might be acceptable to the saints in Jerusalem. And then lastly, his third prayer is that he might still make it to Rome. So he's looking beyond Jerusalem into Rome. Now what's remarkable about this is ultimately all three of these things came true. Maybe not the way Paul might have hoped. Um, He was delivered from the Jews, but after a severe beating, what appears to be almost death, the gift was acceptable to the Jews there, but then lastly, Paul actually makes it to Rome. Just not the way that he intended these 40 Jews that plot to hijack and to kill Paul when the Romans were preparing to transport him, um, they put, like I said, a number of soldiers on it to ensure Paul's safety. And through that, the Romans actually take him to the Roman capital. Unfortunately, where he spends um, time in prison. But he made it to Rome. Um, so God actually answered, his, answered their prayers. It makes me sit back and wonder too sometimes, you know. I get the, the idea that Paul here, I wouldn't say it's desperate, but he really just, really wants him to pray for these things because he needs it. And I think about us sometimes, you know, one of the reasons um, we do what we do here at Renew with the, with the church service, um, when we started talking about getting together here for worship, um, one of the things that I struggled with was, I've been a part of obviously a lot of churches, And I thought, you know, saints are supposed to pray. We're supposed to pray together. Um, And so often in churches, I I feel like prayer is something we do as a transition between events in the church. You know, we, we, you know, pray to welcome people. And then we have a couple songs and we pray to get us to the next thing while people come up on stage. And then we pray to, and we have a tendency to, it's not that we don't pray. Um, But I thought, how many people sitting in the pews are actually praying? as that happens. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And I really thought to myself, you know, it's got to be a bigger part of what we do. And so, one of the thoughts I had was, let's make a part of our service a time where we share prayer requests and pray. And that's nothing new. We do that in Bible studies all the time. And I know that it can be sometimes a little long, you know, but that's what we do. We're expected to do that. We should pray together. We should spend time engaging in prayer. We should have opportunities to share what we need. Um, now, as churches grow and you get bigger, it gets more complicated and all that, but 
you know, I think it's I think it's valuable for us to do that. Because we need to be coveting one another's prayers. We really do. Um, just like the Apostle Paul did. And sometimes there's great needs and sometimes there's not. You know? Sometimes it's a little prayer request. Sometimes it's much more, I'll call it, intense. You know? Because somebody comes in and they've got a real burden and they desperately need us to pray for something. And that's our time to do that. So that's kind of why we do what we do. I, I was trying to maybe find a way that we could spend more time praying together as a group because I began to think that that might be something we lack sometimes in the church. We all pray out there, but the early church got together to pray in homes. How many times do we as a church say, well, let's just get together and pray in somebody's home? We don't really do that. Okay, So that's one of the ways I was hoping we could kind of foster that here as part of our service. Um, and it's partly because of passages like this where you see the Apostle Paul and others um, covet prayers from other believers. It's important that we do that. Um, it's important we do it on our own too, you know. Um, when whoever's up here takes a prayer request um, and prays, those get then sent out to the elders so that we can pray. Um, Acts chapter six tells us that's one of the responsibilities of the elders to do that. So, so I would encourage you to keep doing that. But I'm going to go ahead and just wrap it up with that. I think you know, again, this is just sort of a reflection of the Apostle Paul. As we think about him, we can see that. Um, he recognized his need for others in the church, just as we should. He was motivated by the needs of those that he saw around him, and he worked towards trying to meet some of those physical needs. But lastly, he coveted the prayers of the body of Christ, just as we should here as well.